I'm fascinated by what people do and why they do it. I don't know if, if you like to sit back and watch people and figure out their motives and what they're all about. I love that kind of thing. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by what is it that motivates people to do something maybe that's good, maybe that's not good, but... Uh, you know, think about work. What motivates people to do what they do at work? If you think about your own job or the job that you once had, what was it about those folks that you would say, this is why they do what they do? There was a study that, that uh, came out from uh, a leadership teacher and author. His name is Ken Blanchard. And he, he did a survey among workers and, and their supervisors. And, and he listed 10 different things, things like uh, interesting work and job security and good wages and loyalty to employees and a variety of different things. And he said, rank these things in the order of importance for you. And what was interesting was the motivation that people have for doing the work they do, for doing a good job, if you will, came down really to three things. Ranked in this order was, was the, the final tally. First of all, people want to do interesting stuff. They want to have some interest level in what they're doing. They want to say, I'm doing something that, that interests me. That's number one on the list. Number two on the list was they want to feel recognized and appreciated. Uh, if you're a boss in any way, pay attention. You, you're going to get something good this morning just in the introduction to the sermon. All right? They want to do interesting stuff. They want to feel recognized and appreciated. And thirdly, they want to make an impact. Nowhere on there is money. Money is not the single most important motivating factor for people. Now, for some, maybe it is. You say, what well, is for me? That's fine. But for most folks, those other three things are more important. I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by why do people do what they do? Of course, as a former athlete and now as a coach and trying to figure out what can help motivate young players, I'm fascinated by all this stuff. But I'll tell you what's more interesting to me. Far beyond what people do for a living and why they do it, far beyond what athletes do and why they do it, is, is what people do or don't do when it comes to the things and the mission of God. As a pastor, you got to know that that is very interesting to me. I show up every Sunday, and I stand <clears throat> excuse me, before a crowd, and I wonder, are you motivated to do the things that we see in the Scripture? Not do you know that you should, not even do you know how, but are you motivated? Do you want to? That, to me, fascinating. Why do people do what they do or don't do when it comes to the things and the mission of God? Our series is called Go. We're in this for 10 weeks. And if you're just joining us, you've jumped in at the right time. Right in the middle, you've still got plenty of time to figure out whether you like it or not. Our goal in this series is to do three things. To increase our understanding, to increase our motivation, and to increase our application toward what we're calling missional living, life on mission for the Lord. How can you leverage your life, your interests, your skills, your abilities, the things that you're good at, the relationships that you have? How can you leverage those things? How can you help see those be leveraged for seeing people come to know and understand and to love Jesus? So far, what we've done, and you'll see a couple of these reflected on our board, We've identified our one for ten, one person, one group over ten weeks in this series that, that we're trying to pray for. That we say, God, give me an opportunity to, to share the love of Jesus with them, to help them understand your plan for their life. We, we talked in the second uh, sermon on how, to, how do we leave things behind. If we're going to steal second base, we can't keep our foot on first. How do we get there? What is it that we need to step away from? And then we looked at the fact that 
Sometimes when you're trying to, to show the love of Jesus to people, the folks that God has put on your heart are just going to drive you crazy. What do you do? How do you handle that? And then, and then we, we looked a couple of weeks ago at, at the idea of, God, would you please bother me with the things that, that bother you? God, what's on your heart? What breaks your heart? And Lord, burden me, overwhelm me with those things. And then last week, we looked at what do you do if you feel like with the people that, that you think God has sent you to, what do you, what do, you do when you're just beating your head against the wall? And, uh, and that, was, that was interesting. Uh, certainly, I think, resonated with many people. Today, the question is, are we motivated to live on mission for Jesus? Now, let me put some things up on the screen for you real quick. I did a survey before this series started, and I want to show you some of the results. I, I, there was a series of questions about our, our role as a spiritual companion or leader for the people that we interact with on a regular basis, all right? So here's, here's the first question. The first, the first question was, uh, it was a statement, and you answered accordingly. I believe that it is my undeniable biblical responsibility to be a spiritual companion or leader and or for the people that I interact with on a regular basis. Here were the results. 56% who answered the survey anyway said, that's very true of me. I know I, it is my undeniable biblical response, but that's what God has sent me out to do. 44% said, that's somewhat true of me. I, uh, you know, yeah, sort of. There wasn't a single answer that said, no, I don't believe that at all. So I just say that because the majority of the folks who responded to the survey, and I would say as a result, it seems the majority of folks who are in attendance on a regular basis here at our church would probably say, yeah, all right, I know, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing this. The next question was, I view myself as a spiritual companion. Now, there's a difference between knowing this is what I should do and actually viewing myself as that for somebody. The, the numbers change just a little bit. Very true of me, 22% said I view myself. So we go from 56% who say, I know without any doubt that this is my responsibility, but only 22% of us say, yeah, I kind of, I really do view myself. 70% say that's somewhat true. And 8% said, no, I don't really view myself as that at all. Now, the next question is the one that I come down to today that I really want to focus on. Because it said, I'm motivated to be a spiritual companion and or leader. For the people in my life. I'm motivated. We know it was 56% say it, it's my responsibility. 36% say, yeah, very true. I am, I am motivated. Somewhat true, 53% of us. So half of us say, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of motivated. But 11% of us say, I'm not at all motivated to be a spiritual companion. Now, I'll just tell you, this isn't about guilt today. It's not about shame. This is about trying to help us understand what is it that should motivate us? What is it that keeps us from being motivated? And how can we close the gap between what we know we should be doing and maybe what we're not doing? I, I will say this, that one of, the, one of the questions on the survey asked you to, to tell how significant the impact of things like sermons and conversations and so on are on your motivation for missional living. 77% of you who took the survey said that sermons have a significant impact on your motivation. Now, you may just be playing along because I'm the preacher and you want to make me feel good. That's fine. But I'm going to take you at your word. 77% of you said sermons matter to you. So here we go. All right, you ready? You're going to get a sermon. Now, that's really intimidating, I know. But it's going to happen, all right? So I'm trying. My goal this morning is to help us see what should be our motivation for this. I want you to turn to the book of Jonah. It's a small little book among what are known as the minor prophets. Now, the minor prophets were not less important. They just didn't write as much. 
That's why they're called minor. They didn't write as much. They're not less important. They had very important jobs. Jonah is packed right in there in, in the, toward the end of the Old Testament among the minor prophets. He follows a guy named Obadiah and comes right before Micah as far as the way that it's ordered in our Bibles. So when you think of Jonah, the story of Jonah, I would imagine that even if you have never been in church in your life or you've not heard of Jonah in any context religiously whatsoever, most likely the first thing that pops into your mind is a big fish. Jonah, three days in the belly of the whale. That's probably what pops into your mind. You know that a storm came. When Jonah ran from God, God brought a storm, and they threw him off the boat, and a big fish swallows him and then spits him up on dry land, and Jonah then carries out the mission that God had sent him. But I... I, I want you to, to, to just imagine with me for a second that the point of the story of Jonah is not really about the fish. Okay, just what if the point of the story is not primarily about the fish? What if it's something else? What if we're supposed to remember something different when we hear Jonah, when we hear the story? What if it's about our motivation? What if it's about a guy who lacked motivation to do what God had called him to do, who probably is a lot like many of us today. And if we were to insert ourselves in the story, maybe we could relate. Because the truth is, the question comes up, okay, yeah, go and make disciples. Oh, that's exciting stuff. And I know God's coming, but what if I don't want to go? Honestly, what if I, there's nothing in me that wants to go and make disciples. What if I don't want to? I think we're getting closer then to the point of the story of Jonah. When we begin to ask those questions, let me tell you, if you've never been able to be honest in church, you've been at the wrong church. This morning, I want to give you the chance to be honest with yourself and honest with God and honest with each other if you need to be and honest with me after the service. If you want to come and ask for prayer to say, look, I'm not motivated at all. I don't care. I, there's nothing in me that wants to. I want you to feel the freedom to be honest. You can hide it all day long, you can pretend and all that stuff, and I can too, but we don't get anywhere if we're not honest. So I want this morning to be able to show you how your motivation for missional living will lead you to application of that, will lead you to actually do it. I want you to walk away understanding what should motivate you and give you some easy way that you can begin to put it into practice this week. So let's look at the story of Jonah. The first three verses uh, kind of set the scene for us. So here, here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amati. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. That's what God says. <clears throat> However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it and went with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Now, when you read the story, when you read the call of Jonah, you understand, if you know anything about the prophets, and if you don't, let me tell you, his call is very different. God shows up on the scene to the other prophets and says, I want you to go to the nation of Israel. I want you to go to Judah. I want you to preach in Jerusalem. I want you to preach to my people. This is a call to go a long way from Jerusalem, about 500 miles, long way to a foreign people, Nothing like nothing about it was going to be easy. His call is very unique, and he's hit with something that he never expected. A very surprising call, and his response 
is equally surprising. In fact, I've got a little bit of video of it. Uh, Austin, I think you can pull up the video. We got Jonah's response right after he got the call from God. So see if we can check this out. Oh, yeah, here we go. You didn't know he was an asparagus, did you? Jonah flatly said to God when he showed up and said, I want you to go to Nineveh. He said, no. He broke out into song even. He said, no, I'm not going. It's a very shocking call that Jonah got and an even more shocking response because the other prophets might have been reluctant, but they went anyway. Jonah says in response, God, I'm not going. Maybe you've felt that way. This whole series is just annoying to you. Because you think, no, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not. Do, you don't understand the kinds of people I'm around. You don't understand who's in my family. You don't know who I work with. You don't know who my friends are. Plain and simple, I'm not going. Jonah refused, and maybe you've said the same thing. But why did he say no to God? I mean, he's a prophet. He's a guy who knows God. It's not as if he had never met God before. He, he knew him. Why is it that he would say no? I think if we're honest... And if he were honest, we'd all admit some of the same things. This, the way that we often feel regarding our call to go and make disciples. There are three things that, that he probably should have admitted and maybe we ought to admit too. The first is, one of the reasons that we don't go, why I'm not going, first, I'm scared. Jonah was scared of Nineveh, big time. <clears throat> they were evil. I mean, God said it himself in verse 2. He says, their wickedness has confronted me. It, it's, it's overwhelming. They are a wicked, evil, nasty, awful people. They're evil. Nineveh was the opposite of everything that Israel believed in. I mean, they were a godless place that they were brutal and ruthless. And for centuries after, after Nineveh earned its reputation, you said the word Nineveh and people just automatically thought evil. This was not an easy calling, and Jonah was scared. And the truth is, sometimes we are too. We're scared of the people that God has put us around or has put around us. We don't know what to do because they do things we don't like. They do things that aren't right. Jonah was scared because they're evil. and they, they, they were a great enemy to Israel as well. They, in fact, they were the worst enemy and the biggest threat that Israel faced. They were powerful and ruthless. They were known for their brutal treatment of their enemies. And God wants Jonah to go and preach there. No thanks. They were also a, an overwhelming kind of place. It was a huge city. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Jonah set out on the first day uh, to walk in the city. Right before that, it says it was a three-day walk, an enormous place. Jonah, one man against this entire city. Maybe you've felt that way. And you say, I, there's no way. I, I, I'm kind of scared to go by myself. Jonah, afraid to go on his own. I wonder if you were to answer honestly today, what makes you scared about reaching out with the love of Jesus? What makes you scared about living your life as a believer in Jesus outside the walls of the church? What is it that frightens you? Maybe you say, well, I, I don't really know what to say. <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. One of the questions in the survey was, what are your biggest fears or hindrances when it comes to mission living? And over and over and over and over and over again, the responses were, I, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. 
I don't know what to say. I'm afraid I'm going to offend someone. I'm afraid that they're going to be pushed away and, and then they won't hear the message. Or, or maybe you, you fear like Jonah did, that God's actually serious, that he really does want you to do this. <laughs> that he does want you to talk to those people. Or maybe you're afraid that you'll be alone or you'll make a fool of yourself. But one of the reasons why we say, God, I'm not going to do that is because we're scared. And I want you to know it's okay to admit that this morning. This isn't self-help time. This is get help from God time. And I want you to understand that if you're afraid of that, maybe you're just deathly afraid and, and, and you just clam up and you don't live your life as a believer. You're just kind of a nice person. And that's kind of where it ends because you're scared. I think Jonah could understand. What we do as a result of our fear, I'm scared, so I run. Jonah ran away. Verse one or verse three, chapter one. He went as far away as he could. He got up and he ran the other way. Nineveh is on one side of the known world. Tarshish is on the other side. He runs as far away as he can. Instead of going where God sent him, he he made up his own destination. And ironically and interestingly, he gets on a ship. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but the Hebrew people were terrified of water. They were land people. They, they, didn't, they didn't get out into the water much. In fact, when they thought about water, all they thought about was danger and storms. And Jonah is so desperate to get away from God's call in his life that he goes and gets on a ship. He puts himself in extreme danger just to get away from what God had told him to do. It sort of reminds me of of Squint's Palladorus in, in The Sandlot. You seen that movie? This young boy who is infatuated with the lifeguard at the pool, Wendy Peppercorn, and she is a woman. And he has been for years going to the pool and tortured by her beauty. And so he does something so desperate. Squint can't swim, but he goes to the diving board in the deep end of the pool. And in order to get the attention, in order to finally do what he's been wanting to do, he jumps in. And lo and behold, Wendy has to save him. Something so desperate. It's sort of like what Jonah does. He puts himself in grave danger because he's so desperate to get away from what God wanted him to. I wonder how it is that, that you and I run away from God's call in our life. Maybe, maybe we just say, well, you know, if I just delay long enough, God will use somebody else. You know, God will use that preacher. Or my Sunday school teacher. Or, you know, that person that I know is really close to God. Surely to goodness, God's going to use somebody else. Or maybe if I just ignore it, then this, this, whole, this whole thing that, you know, I'm supposed to, to love on people in the name of Jesus. I'm supposed to reach it. Maybe it'll just go away. Or, or if I stay busy enough, then I, I won't have time to do anything about it. We're scared. Many of us, so we run. Secondly... Maybe you'd admit, as Jonah needed to admit, that, that I'm selfish. Maybe it's not so much fear. Maybe, maybe you're selfish. Jonah's attitude really was more selfish than he was afraid. I mean, his fear was legitimate, but he's really just selfish. In fact, he's kind of got a woe-is-me attitude through the whole story. Look in verse 7 of chapter 1. If you still got your Bible handy, your tablet, or your smartphone, look at it. Chapter 1, verse 7. The, the storm comes up, and Jonah is found asleep. And verse 7, come on, the, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots, then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lots singled out Jonah. They said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. 
I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For these men knew he was fleeing the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do with you to calm the sea that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it may quiet down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm that's against you. I deserve to die. Woe is me for what I've done. Chapter 2 lists a big prayer that Jonah gives. Essentially, he's saying, God, get me out of here. I'm stuck in this fish. God, I don't want to be here. Lord, let me, let, woe is me again. He says, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help in the belly of Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths in the heart of the sea. The current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. Woe is me. This story for Jonah is all about him and what God has done to him and the unfair circumstances in his life. And then he gets to Nineveh finally, and in his preaching, he doesn't preach anything, but you guys are going to die. God's going to kill you. You get what you deserve. He's selfish. I wonder if you'd evaluate your life as a believer in Jesus, where does selfishness crop up? Where is it that when you know that God has sent you to be a, a disciple maker that you find yourself being selfish? Maybe it's, it's in the form of sort of being a sponge and just soaking up God's love and, and His grace. And, and, oh God, thank you so much for how good you are in my life. And Lord, I love you so much and I know you love me. And, and, and you know... God, that's kind of where it stops. Instead of being a conduit, you're more like a sponge. You just soak it up. It never passes from you to someone else. Or, or maybe you're selfish in the way that Jonah was and that, that you're a judge and not a missionary. You know, they, they, these people, they deserve what they get. You know, there's no way that God has anything but wrath and anger stored up for these sinful people that are around me. You know, for Jonah, it would have been an absolute privilege to go to the Israelites and preach to them about repentance. I mean, they're God's people. But to go to somebody who he hates, it's a completely different story. Or maybe you find yourself less like a deliverer of the news and more like an editor. God never asked for Jonah's opinion, but he decided to give it anyway. God just said, go, and Jonah sort of argues with God. It's one of his biggest problems. They're on opposite sides of the earth. Literally, when Jonah is in one place and God sent him somewhere else, and figuratively, they're on opposite sides when it comes to their attitude and their focus toward these Ninevites. I'm selfish. The result is we rationalize. I'm selfish, so I rationalize. Well, God loves me more than these folks. They deserve what they get. God should see things my way. I, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to do anything about them. I wonder where is it that you might identify as being selfish. You get to the third one, and I'll be honest, it's going to sound offensive at first. But I really think this was the crux of where Jonah and maybe many of us find ourselves. Because you may say, okay, yeah, I'm a little bit, a little bit scared. Okay, I, I, yeah, I can be selfish. But it's the third one. It's, it's this third one that I think really captures Jonah's biggest problem. And for many of us, and I say myself included, the truth is I'm stupid. Jonah forgot who he was. And how often do you forget who you are? How often do I forget who I am? I am a sinner in need of God's grace. At my core, that's who I am. Maybe as a prophet, he felt special. 
But it's interesting that he easily overlooked his sin of running from God when he considered Nineveh's sin. Oh, their sin's worse than mine. I'm nothing like them. I'm better than they are. He's comparing himself to someone else. Completely stupid. Forgetting who he is. Maybe you've done the same thing and you say, I'm not motivated to reach these people at all. And it could come down to the fact that, as I said, as offensive as it may sound, that sometimes we're just stupid. We've forgotten who we are apart from Jesus Christ. We've forgotten that apart from Him and His grace and His love and His rescue out of our sin, that we are lost. Standing under God's wrath. Or maybe it's you've forgotten who God is. Jonah remembered, but he didn't like it. God is a God whose grace knows no boundaries. Jonah wanted God to be like him. He wanted him to play favorites. He wanted him to be critical. And he forgot that God kept showing up in his story, pursuing him over and over and over and over. God appears to him, tells him to go to to, to Nineveh. Jonah runs away. God sends a storm to get Jonah's attention. They throw him overboard. God sends a whale to rescue him. Jonah prays. God rescues him out of the belly of the fish. He comes to Jonah again and says, I want you to go. Jonah gets mad in chapter 4 and goes and sits down, and God makes a plant grow up beside him to shade him. Then God wants to get his attention again. He causes a worm to eat the plant. Then he sends a wind and the sun to really beat down on Jonah and get his attention. God never stopped pursuing him, and yet Jonah forgot all about that when he considered the Ninevites, that God might actually be pursuing sinful people that Jonah didn't care anything about. I think maybe we forget who we are, we forget who God is, or or we forget who other people are. It's so easy to, to think that our fight in this world is against people, flesh and blood. You realize the New Testament, Paul in his writing to the Ephesians tells us that, that, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, not against what we can see. But don't we make it that way a lot? I don't like those people. I don't like what they do. We forget that other people are just as much in need of God's grace and God's love as we are. Chapter 4, verse 10, God God rounds out what he's saying to Jonah. Jonah's been angry. He's been mad about all this stuff. He's, He's mad because God loves the Ninevites. He's mad because they repent and God forgives them. He's mad because his plant dies. God says to him, You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh? Jonah cares more about this plant than he does about people who are lost and dying and on their way to hell. I wonder in our lives, do we forget that that's the true state of people apart from Jesus? That shouldn't make us angry at them. It should make us compassionate toward them. It should help us in our love and increase our love to them. God's logic was, I made them, so I love them. Jonah's logic was, they're evil, so I hate them. You see the difference? I'm stupid. So as a result, I I resent God's call on my life. I'm, I'm stupid, so I resent this. I resent God for sending me. Jonah says this in chapter 4. Look at verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased. This is after God forgives the Ninevites. He preaches against them. They repent. God forgives them. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? I knew this was going to happen. Why would you even send me here? That's why I fled. God, why would you send me to these people? I didn't want this in the first place. 
Jonah resents his calling. He resents God for loving the Ninevites. They don't deserve it, he says. He says in verse 2 of chapter 4, I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, the one who relents from sending disaster. And I resent all that about you. God, I wish none of that were true about you. I wish you only loved me. He resents not only God for sending him, God for loving them, but he resented the Ninevites for just being the Ninevites. He hated them. I hate them. I hate what they do. Jonah has lots and lots of motivation. (laughs) Motivation to run the opposite way of God's calling. And as I told you from the very beginning, I want you to be able to be honest this morning. Maybe you're the same way and you say, I just, I'm coming to church each week and I know you're going to be done with this series at some point and I'll be glad. I don't want anything to do with it. Bothers me. I don't. I don't want to be a missionary and at work. I don't want to live life on mission. I just want to. I just want to enjoy God's presence in my life, and that's it. I'll come to church and call today. But what's God really saying in the Book of Jonah? What's the message? Because it's not just about a fish. It's about a reluctant prophet. That God wouldn't stop pursuing. God wouldn't stop sending. God wouldn't stop showing up in His life. And so as we consider what might be the message, I wonder if you put yourself in this story, who is it that you hate? Who is it that you're scared of? Who disgusts you? Who threatens you? Who do you wish that God would just absolutely wipe off the map? Who are the kind of people that you just don't like? Who are your rivals at school, at work, or wherever? And that's really Jonah's deal. He just wants them destroyed. He would be fine if God showed up in wrath and wiped them off. He doesn't want them to have a second chance or any chance for repentance. He just wants to sit back and watch the judgment of God. Has that ever taken root in your heart? God, I, I need to pray for these people. God, I pray you'd kill them. Lord, just destroy them. Man, God, they don't deserve anything from you. Make their lives so miserable, God. But thank you for your forgiveness in my life. Oh, God, thank you for your grace and your love. You're so good. But God, kill those people. Lord, I don't like I know you don't either. And so I'm just going to pray that you'd take them out. wonder how you feel about people like that. The message of Jonah, I think, is very simple. It's really, if you read the entire book in its entirety, I think it's really shouted to the Israelites and by result shouted to us that those who have received the grace of God have no excuse for being graceless people. Those who have received the grace of God have no excuse for being graceless people. Not about guilt this morning, but I want you to help, I want you to help you see the true motivation. I wonder if you'd, if you'd evaluate your own life, how is it that sometimes you are graceless? Maybe it's your insistence on your preferences or a lack of prayer for people who are far from God, an avoidance of people who make you angry or disgust you, or keeping to yourself as far away from people as you can. Or maybe this afternoon you'll be tempted to leave a horrible tip because somebody didn't get your drink right. Or maybe you're the kind of person who complains about everything, believing you have the right to share your opinion without any filter. I'm just speaking my mind. Maybe you hold grudges or you have prejudices 
or you don't offer forgiveness or reconciliation or you're stingy. I don't know how it is that in your life I could give you a laundry list of things in my life where I am graceless. Our motivation to live life on mission is simple. It is the grace of God in our own lives. It is when we understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That and that alone is our motivation. Let me tell you, don't set out this week to change the world. Set out this week to live in and to spill over, to ooze out the grace of God in everything that you do. When you understand that John 3.16 is true, that God loved us and so He sent His Son to die for us, that whoever believes will have eternal life, that's the grace of God. When you understand Romans 5.8, when Paul wrote that while we were still dead in our sin, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Not because we were good enough, but because we couldn't be good enough. And then you understand 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, when Paul wrote that, that Jesus on the cross was reconciling, making right the world to himself, not holding our sins against us, trading his righteousness for our filthiness so that we can have his righteousness that we can't get on our own. That's the grace of God giving us what we don't deserve. I hope this morning, if you get nothing else, to impress upon you the grace of God in your life. God has given you in Jesus Christ what you don't deserve. What we deserve is to stand on our own under the wrath of God. And in Christ Jesus, though, we stand under Him. He envelops us. He pays for the wrath of God. He atones for it. He covers it. And when we stand under Him, we don't face the wrath of God anymore. Do you understand the grace of God? He gives us what we don't deserve. And our application of that... Our motivation for missional living is I've experienced the grace of God. My application of it is very simple. I'm going to leave drops of grace wherever I go this week. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a lot of it. Write down the references if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is given a whole, a whole idea in the first three chapters. Here's who we are in Jesus Christ. Now here's how we live as a result of God's grace in our life. Chapter 4 verse 2 and 3 says, Live with humility and gentleness and patience and love and unity. Chapter 4, verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building someone up according to the need of the moment. That may give grace to those who hear it. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 to 32, As a result of God's grace in your life, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. It's real simple. If I could do anything to increase your motivation toward missional living, it's not going to be to form a new program at church and get you excited about it. It's not even going to be to to put 80 shoeboxes up here and say, hey, don't you want to be involved in this? It's going to be to once again remind you and to remind me of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's the only thing that will last. My prayer for you this week is that you will spend time with God, letting Him once again overwhelm you with His grace and then spill it out everywhere. Both Jonah and the Ninevites needed a second chance, and you may be here this morning needing a second chance. Don't miss that part of the story. And God offers it today. 
through faith in Jesus Christ. A brand new lease on life, starting over from where you are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that when you're in Christ, all the old is gone. The new has come. Because in Him you're forgiven. In Him your sins are not held against you. In Him you have new life both here and forever. In Him your fear is overwhelmed. In Him your selfishness is is completely overcome. And in Him, in Jesus, you have a daily reminder of God's graciousness and His love towards you. Motivation that is all we really need is to understand God's grace in our lives, to receive it, and then simply to live it out. I wonder this week, how is it that you can just leave drops of grace everywhere you go? Start today. I joke about the tip, but somebody here this morning, listen to me, somebody here is going to go out to eat and get horrible service. Horrible. Terrible. It's going to be awful. I mean, they're going to spill something on you. You're, now, now nobody's going out to eat, right? But it's going to happen. You're going to get awful, terrible service. I ain't giving them nothing. They work for $2 an hour. Give them a nice tip for crying out loud. They're not trying to spill the drink. How can you drop grace everywhere? When they drop your drink, how can you drop grace? When that person at work who does that same thing that annoys you over and over and over again... How can your response be one of grace? Now, I'm not saying that God's grace condones any of our sin. Not at all. But God's grace overcomes it. Where sin abound, God says, grace abounds even more. I wonder how we could meet all those things that people do that drive us crazy, that are sinful, that are awful. How can we meet it with the same kind of grace that God has given us? See God's grace in your life. Spill it out everywhere. You want to know how can I live life on mission? That's it. Let's pray together. I told you I want to give you the chance to be honest with God. Be honest with yourself. And if you need someone else to talk to, I, I want you to know I'm not your priest. Jesus Christ is your priest. He is your high priest. You can go directly to Him. But if you'd like somebody to pray for you, if you say, look, I I, I really need some help in this area of my life, would you pray for me? I'm scared to death, or I'm selfish, or I'm honestly, I'm just plain stupid. I forget all the time what God has done in my life. I wonder, what is your response this morning? To throw yourself on the grace of God and say, Lord, I thank you so much. I surrender my life to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, this week, I going to drop grace everywhere I go, but Lord, I need your empowerment to do it. Maybe you need to be honest with God this morning. Honest with yourself, or maybe honest with someone else. You can spend time with the Lord right there in your pew. and Come down front to pray. Come and talk with me and be fine. Don't leave this morning without having intersected, without having understood the grace of God in your life and made a commitment to just ooze that out everywhere. God, we're so grateful for Your grace. We, I can't even put it into words. It's overwhelming to consider what I deserve apart from Jesus Christ. To consider what You have done in my life. Lord Jesus, I thank You for going to the cross to take my sin. 
Not just part of it, but all of it. Lord, remind me. Remind us of Your grace. Lord, remind us we have no excuse to be graceless people, so God, fill us up and let us spill out everywhere to live life on mission as a gracious person. Not just being nice, but gracious in the name of our gracious God, our Savior, Lord Jesus. You call us this morning to repentance. Help us to respond to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.